1: Good afternoon. You're very welcome along to The Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully here again and I am with you for the next two hours. Yippee-doo says you. Well, I hate to have to start by mentioning the weather again, but this is just a bit of a public service announcement. It looks pretty grim out there with rain and low gray skies uh, but it actually was about 18 degrees in the cars I was coming down so don't be fooled it looks like winter but it actually feels like summer so not too many layers today or you'll be as a sweat of course today is also the beginning of the plowing uh, championships in rathaniska in County Leash, and I'd imagine it's a fairly mucky affair given all the the wet weather we've had recently I remember a few years ago I had to write a piece about the uh, the championships which meant I had to attend I'd never been before and I'm a bit of a city girl this was a few years ago And I mean, I was blown away by the scale of the event. Apparently, it's one of the largest outdoor events in Europe. Um, But much like today, it was a soggy and very wet affair. Uh, But I had prepared and I had invested, invested, uh, in a pair of very what I thought were very groovy wellies they were kind of pink and purple and I thought I just looked the part and I thought I looked fab anyway after a few hours my job was done I had all my information and I was starting to hear stories of cars getting stuck in the mud and not being able to get out so I thought time to leave and um, my car didn't get stuck but my wellies got stuck on my feet I could not get my wellies off I sat on the back of my car like an idiot crying seriously crying uh, because I couldn't get my wellies off and I couldn't work out what I was going to do and I had visions of my being stuck in Ratheniska possibly forever because I couldn't there was no way I was putting the filthy wellies into the car to drive home in the end mortifyingly I had to stop a man passing by and ask him if he would mind wrestling my muddy boots off God bless him he did as well he was very good Uh, but um, I I live in fear and dread that somebody will ask me to go down and do something in the ploughing again because uh, and I've never worn Wellington boots since anyway are you at the plowing? Or are you going to the ploughing? We'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Is it mucky there? How is it there? How are the crowds? Um, you can get in touch with us by sending us either a text or a WhatsApp about the ploughing or the weather or anything else that you might hear in the next two hours that you want to comment on. Send us a text or a WhatsApp message to 0861800658. Now, as per usual, we have a cracker of variety and a very varied show lined up for you today. So let's get down to business. And first off, I am a huge believer in the power of talk therapy of psychotherapy but it can be a daunting thing to do uh, particularly for the first time well one woman has come up with an ingenious way to make the whole process a little bit less daunting and she's doing it in a very unusual way psychotherapist Cara Byrne also known as the hike psych is on the line to tell me more hiya Cara
3: hi
1: Barbara how are you doing
0: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, but your weather report is a bit stressful for me. I have some hiking clients this evening, so I'm going to be out in the rain. Oh
1: god. Well, yeah. yeah. Just because it's really welly boots. So I I still have <laughs> nightmares about Wellington boots. Yeah, I think hiking boots. Her. Hiking boots with um what you call them with laces are laces. probably a lot easier than to to try and uh, get off a pair of Wellington boots, which really is a two-person operation I discovered. <laughs> but anyway, that's not what we're going to talk about. So look, tell me about what you do and why you you have referred to your office as your tech office. Yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so I in 2020 I decided to uh, combine my two loves. I was already practicing as a psychotherapist for uh, for a number of years beforehand um and I had fallen in love with hiking in 2017 um under funny circumstances when a friend of mine invited me on what I thought was a girl's shopping trip to Scotland but turned out was a trip with Ben Nevis. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) Friends like those, huh?
0: Exactly, yeah. I didn't even own a pair of boots at that stage. I don't think I'd ever hiked before. Um, But in, so obviously with lockdowns for COVID, everything had gone online. All my clients had gone online and I had lots of them asking you know is there any way I could see you in person it's not the same and and for a lot of people that was therapy during Covid was really difficult because you might be in a house where you're sharing a house with lots of other people or the people that you need to discuss are in the house yeah. or you know it's just not a perhaps a safe environment with in which to speak so
3: yeah.
0: um I had had the idea for for kind of hiking therapy before but Covid was sort of the push uh, to start it so I yeah I moved my practice into the hills and and I live at the foot of the Dublin mountains so Ticknock is just up the road from me so Ticknock mountain suddenly became the Ticknophilus and um, yeah and it all started from there and excellent it's just been yeah it's been a great um a great kind of source of joy and a change of scenery and i still do online and things like that
1: but um i, prefer it make the, it, the
0: mountains.
1: I can understand how it would make it easier for a client you know to mm. be you know doing something else as well as talking you know which makes yeah. it kind of easier to do but for you yeah. as the therapist is it harder for you to uh to do these these sessions outdoors
0: there's uh, there's kind of pluses and, and minuses to it. I mean, there's funny things with, like, if you have someone with anxiety, I can tell within the first couple of steps if they if they have anxiety because they'll walk much faster than uh, than my non-anxious clients. You know, you see things like this and, it, you know, the challenges, I suppose, are, well, the weather and reading body language is a little bit trickier because you're side to side versus facing each other like right. you would be in a clinic. But actually that's part of the reason that's clients find it easier it feels less intense it feels less intimidating it feels it feels more natural it does. You know, when we talk to friends when we go out we tend not to sit you know unless you're stuck in a cafe or something but facing each other intently staring over a table with a box of tissues on it you know that's yeah. not that's not normal for us whereas walking and moving that all that all feels very natural and it kind of you just feel like it's the two of you out versus the wild essentially so it's a more level playing field and it's, it's sure. less, you know, I'm the expert over here and you're the, you know, you're the person who needs help. It's it's more just, we're just two humans out, out in the rain and, and we're... Uh, you know, uh, having a walk. We're walking and talking.
1: Yeah. Now again, I can understand the attraction of doing this in the summer, even with the limitations <laughs> of an Irish summer. But as the as the weather closes in and as we head into winter mm-hmm. and the days get significantly shorter, do you yeah. still do some hikes and and some psychs I, at the same I time? I do them.
0: Yeah, I do them all. I started in November, so I didn't I didn't give myself an easy run into it. So yeah, my very first one was on a November evening. Um, wow. And yeah, we we. We go all the way through and uh, we use head torches so that that adds an extra element
3: oh you and, go in the dark
0: uh, yeah we go in the dark yeah because i mean sure from from the next couple of months it's dark from yeah. early afternoon you know early evening and uh yes yeah, that's uh that's what we do and and nobody nobody minds they so, you know it kind of adds an extra element to it and uh- actually there's a lot to be said about walking in the dark in terms of anxiety if you suffer with it, which is something obviously that I would see coming in and out a lot, but being in the dark in, gives you a sense of natural anxiety, healthy anxiety, because we right. should be a little more anxious in the dark because we're short sure of sense. You yeah. know, we need to be aware, more aware of our surroundings. and It's actually a really good experience for people who have unhealthy anxiety to experience healthy anxiety because you start to notice the difference in how it feels within your body so it, it starts to give you kind of a baseline of, of what's what's okay and what needs to be worked on
1: and, and the, so sil- the silence must be lovely as well you know the fact that you're doing this it must be a lot quieter even in the Dublin mountains um, it must be a lot quieter you know if you're it uh, can
0: you know. be if you don't have loads of wind or sideways right. rain or you know sometimes if, if you get an evening like that you, you kind of end up shouting at each other <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> tell me
3: about your childhood
1: you know sister. I'm <laughs> feeling <laughs> really anxious now I'm getting very wet <laughs> yeah that doesn't
0: be fair it doesn't happen that often yeah and if it does i will try to pick a route that's more through the forestry so that it's you know you're Sheltered. less exposed to the wind but you know no one has ever not showed up because of the weather and that says a lot about yeah you know what what clients are getting out of it and and, and we have walked through some serious wet weather you and, know and serious wind
1: and i read somewhere as well that you don't mind people bringing their dogs as well which is killing two birds literally with the one stone
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, dogs can be a little bit of a distraction, but it it makes somebody feel comfortable, you know. And for a lot of people, you know, a dog might be their companion. It might be the, the, you know... The, the creature that, that helps them feel more settled and more comfortable. And if that makes that process easier and it means you get another chore off your list of things to do that day, then absolutely bring the dogs along. That's not a problem.
1: I just wanted to touch on the fact as well that your backstory, I thought, was very interesting because you yes. didn't start off doing psychotherapy. Your your degree was in marketing and you set up a company yeah. just before yeah. during the Celtic Tiger and you lost everything in the crash. I did.
0: <laughs> Not a good time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and actually, to be honest, I think it's. I think, and most people come to therapy later in life. I think you sort of need some lived experience before yeah. you you start to try and help people with you know with what they're going through. It, it's something that kind of you need to have some An empathy. Yeah, you need to have been through some stuff, yeah. you know, before you can before you can do it. But yeah, that was that was my <laughs> my starter. But to be honest, it's I, it's been a lovely change. And actually, when I when I retrained, I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I was so kind of burnt from from losing the business and yeah. you know and losing all my savings and everything that I I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I you know it took me a while to. To come up with therapy and it's so funny because when I said it to you know to, to those who love me to people around me they were all like you have been talking about doing that for years <laughs> I was like what really yeah. so it, it was clearly where I was meant to end up but I just uh, I just didn't I didn't know I had to go through some uh, some experiences first to get to the point where I was ready to uh, to change direction.
1: But I think I mean you know I think that's one of the beauties of and I know you're a whole lot younger than I am but I think that's one of the beauties of getting older is that you suddenly do you don't suddenly you slowly kind of start to realise who you really are as all the other things drop away you know Um, and I think that that's that's a really a really useful kind of thing. Your type Mm. of therapy as well I'm thinking would probably suit anybody with autism as well because it would be an easier yes
0: it's actually super helpful for anyone who's yeah. neurodivergent and adhd as well because the movement will allow for some space for some clarity yeah. so that kind of excess energy can be put into the actual walking and for the eye contact piece you know and that doesn't affect everybody with autism buttons, yeah. but it is quite a common feature so um, and it really makes that much less it's much less stressful. You get into focus on what you're actually there yeah. to talk about and not on having to read the cues and, and having to try and maintain something that just doesn't feel comfortable for you. So Listen. I have found that to be really helpful for um. It sounds great.
1: Cara, how do people get in touch with you?
0: Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not that great on social media. Instagram is kind of the place where I live the most. So and that's I'm you're at, at the hike, hike psych,
1: and that's P S Y C H, the hike psych, yes, and people can right. find you there. Listen, I've really enjoyed yes. talking to you. Continued success. Um, it Thank sounds you, like Barbara. a great idea. Enjoy the mountains, and thanks very much for talking to me today. We'll take a break. You might remember a couple of months ago the late lunch covered a topic the topic of making advanced uh, plans for your end of life um, which is something that a lot of us don't really want to think about but it's something that's really important my mother did it and it made such a difference um, when she died to have all her plans and know exactly what was, was what she wanted so this Wednesday in Cabra Castle there's an event called Have Your Say and it's all about pre-planning your funeral so that you can guide your family through your wishes and uh, there'll be a specialist advice from the team at My Farewell Wishes who will also answer any questions you you might have and all of that is taking place in Cabra Castle this Wednesday at 7.30pm and as I say I think it's a it's a really really great idea uh, the other thing which I want to tell you about is that the Louth Joint Policing Committee are holding a number of public meetings uh, this week and the public are invited to attend the dates are the 19th of September that's today I think in R.D. Parish Centre the 20th in the Du Dundalk and the 21st of September in the D Hotel Drogheda meetings start at 6.30 the theme of the public meeting will be personal safety and crime prevention and there will be a number of speakers and presentations on these topics. Um, again, you can contact uh, the following number so grab a pen if you don't have have one just to hand grab a pen and the number is 042 932 4389 and you'll get further details there and that's the Louth Joint Policing Committee and their public meetings which are taking place uh, this week. Right, a question for you. Have you ever thought about giving up drink, giving up alcohol, not necessarily because you expect you might have a serious issue with it, but because you think it's preventing you from living your best and healthiest life? Well, my next guest did just that, decided to go initially for a year alcohol free and she has never looked back. Dawn Connolly, how are you? You're very welcome to Late Lunch.
4: Oh, hello. Lovely introduction. Thank you.
1: <laughs> good, good. Um, listen, I have to ask you first, you're known by the handle, as we say on social media, of Sober Fish. Now, the sober we understand. Right. Do you want to explain the fish bit? <laughs> uh,
4: so I was always called um, fish wife because I was so loud um, <laughs> in school. <laughs> and so that became shortened to fish. But then when I started doing this, obviously everybody thinks, it's because i drank like a fish so i have to admit kind of that's what I, I thought.
1: i thought that was where we were going <laughs> but we're not it's that you were loud. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i was called a foghorn for the same reason by my dearly beloved well, I was father foghorn as well <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> excellent anyway listen back in 2016 um i think initially you thought as an experiment that you'd just give up drink yeah. and cigarettes i think for a year yes
4: yeah so tell me that's about right.
1: that
4: um so it was just becoming a real issue because it was starting to take up a lot more time than you know just the drinking time mm. it was the recovery time as i was getting older the hangovers were getting worse mm. and i just kind of thought mm, i've got to change something and ironically an article popped into my newsfeed i hadn't looked at sobriety or anything and this article came into my newsfeed and um, it showed people who'd given up alcohol for a year and they just looked incredible And their lives had changed beyond belief. And so it kind of planted a seed that if I gave myself a year Mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things, what's the worst that could happen? Mm. And, um, yeah, it completely transformed my life.
1: And what do you think was the transformation? Was it the drink or the cigarettes or both? Which do you think had the bigger impact?
4: Oh, uh, definitely the alcohol. I mean, I I was somebody who smoked and drank um, in bulk, so I'd do all my smoking, all my drinking in a set period of time. Right. And I wouldn't, you know, I didn't have to smoke for a week if I didn't want to. Right. Um, I wasn't a daily drinker, daily smoker, but I I literally drank and smoked my quota in a short period of time. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the alcohol, I, I tried to lose weight for the whole of my adult life. And I now realise the alcohol was holding me back. I tried to give up smoking many times and the alcohol always introduced the smoking again, again because they went hand in hand. So, yeah. yeah, alcohol was definitely the component.
1: And which of the two was the hardest to actually give up?
4: I did them at the same time.
1: Right. OK. So, yeah, you don't know. Yeah. So, yeah.
4: so But I I, I I, tried to give up smoking and kept going back to it. And I'd done dry January before and gone back to alcohol. So it was this kind of, I knew I had to do a long period of time. Because right. I knew I could do short periods of both. And so that's why I looked at a year, because I thought that's long enough to hopefully knock them both on the head.
1: Right. So your your thing was always, it wasn't really just an experiment for a year. It was, if I can get to a year, then I'll probably be able to keep going.
4: Uh, no, my my intention was to drink again on day 366. Absolutely. Ah. It was never supposed to be forever. Right. Um, But my life changed so dramatically within the first year, you know, just... The things I enjoyed doing, the weight loss, you know, I don't ask people to concentrate on weight loss at the beginning of their journey because you're obviously craving sugar and things like that. But once the weight started coming off six months into the journey, it was so easy. And I'd spent 20 odd years going to slimming clubs, trying, 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 not realizing that I was sabotaging myself every single week by celebrating with a bottle of wine. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I remember really? I remember I had a long and happy affair with um red wine until it all went wrong as you say as we get older and I just couldn't cope anymore yeah. but I remember somebody telling me that a glass of red wine was like eating a sugar donut.
4: I actually wrote a blog about if wine were a donut because <laughs> if you look at the uh, look at a glass of wine like you say and it's a donut yeah. and there's three large glasses of wine in a bottle
3: yeah. you
4: wouldn't if people are on diets, go and eat three donuts in quick succession. No. But we drink a bottle of red wine thinking, oh, you know, that won't do much damage. But it's constantly sabotaging any other attempts to lose weight. And so, yeah, I've just found, I mean, I, I lost the weight and I've kept, I lost four and a half stone in my first wow. year. And wow. I've, I've pretty much kept that off um, because I'm not sabotaging myself all the time.
1: And what other advantages? I mean, you've mentioned the weight, but how else did your life change as soon as you ditched the alcohol? What other things did you notice?
4: Um, obviously my social life eventually changed. I tried to maintain the same social life before, but it, it as before, it didn't work. I didn't do any exercise. Um, I did sporadic exercise before. I now walk five miles at least every day. Um. My business is now Sobriety. Um, I run a private membership group. I obviously um, do my blog, which is a public page. So, I, uh, you know, my my whole life kind of became sobriety, I guess, which was a real surprise because that was never the intention.
1: Interesting. Um, Can I just bring you back for a moment to what you said about your social life? Because I gave up alcohol because of migraines for a couple of years. Now, I wasn't like you, I'm afraid. I, I never got over it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I never got out got of the plenty, grief. You've the got grief plenty stint. of time. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but one of the things that I found most difficult, and, and again, like you, well, no, probably not like you, I was, um, I drank kind of, I would have a glass of wine every day, um, you know, with your dinner. And I thought that was perfectly sophisticatedly acceptable um, until, as I say, it started giving me raging migraines. But when I was out and about and I said to people, you know, if you're in a social setting and somebody said, what do you want to drink? And if you said, no, I don't drink anymore. I found that people kind of they're not my close friends but people were a bit suspicious of that and i don't know maybe that's just an irish thing people were quite (laughs) suspicious (laughs) of why were you not drinking like you're clearly not pregnant because you're too old so are you on antibiotics or what's the problem you know
4: (laughs) what's the problem yeah um I, i mean things have changed very quickly this year i celebrate seven years of sobriety and things are different now people really listen you know there is a big sober movement so it's a lot easier now. In the beginning for me, because I was such a party animal, I, people just didn't believe me. Right. So when I said, that's it, I'm taking it off the table for a year, you just saw the looks of like, right, okay. We'll sure you how, will. That, how long that lasts for. Mm. Um, but I think it's very dependent on how you um, answer the question. I think if you say, no, I'm not drinking, thank you, and the conversation moves. you've got to say it with conviction. And I yeah. think the problem is, in early sobriety you feel like you have to go oh i'm not drinking because blah blah blah, blah, blah and tell so everybody your life story that's so but true but if you just say oh i'm not drinking tonight thanks very much i'll have a yeah the conversation moves on so it's about the courage and conviction of what you're doing and if you're doing it for health reasons, so for example with you, yeah. you know, you were doing it for a health reason. If somebody then says, oh, what are you drinking? for say, oh, it gives me terrible migraine. Yeah. Nobody's then going to force you. They're not going to then go, oh, go on, just have the wine.
1: Oh, but they like, do oh. here. Oh, they do here. <laughs> and they're like, sure, migraine's only a bad headache. Everybody gets a headache after a few classes. Oh, glasses. my goodness. <laughs> so, but let, let me also just bring you back to something you just said there which struck me when you said, "I'm not. no, I'm not drinking tonight. I'll have a... What's Because that was the other hurdle I found really difficult. If I was celebrating or I was out on a special night, I'll have a glass of sparkling water really didn't kind of make me feel special. <laughs> I sound like such a baby. Didn't make me feel special. You know, when everybody else is having their prosecco and their gin and tonics and I'm there like having my sparkling water. It felt a bit like flat. Oh, <laughs> uh,
4: the sober movements changed a lot. When did you when did you um try spy?
1: This was probably around about 2017 around the same yeah, time it's actually changed yeah
4: changed a lot since then okay I mean, for, for me i drink sparkling water it's my favorite thing okay. i absolutely love it i drink it all day long and i'll drink it for celebration um but there are so many drinks on the market now so many different alcohol free options so you can get um it's called no Seco, one of them which is uh, an alcohol free prosecco right so for example if i was going to a wedding and so and the and the bride said to me what would you like i would say can you get me some of that so that i've got a similar drink in my glass that looks like what everybody else Uh, is having feels special yeah and um but to be honest i i i'm kind of over that now i think in the beginning of sobriety a bit like when you're vaping when you're trying to stop smoking you try and replicate drinks in the first few years and then after that it, it 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 different yeah because you're just drinking because you're thirsty if you're celebrating it doesn't really matter as long as you're doing the celebrating do you see what i mean
1: yes i do yeah yeah and are you still there yet Oh, yeah. Grant, sorry, I thought the line had dropped there for a moment. Um, Now, I know you mentioned that uh, you're on social media and you have a kind of um, a sober fish community, if you like, uh, on there. Do you also coach people in if somebody wants to kind of give up alcohol? And as I say, we're not talking about people now who necessarily have a serious problem with alcohol or people who think they just their lives would improve if they could ditch the alcohol. Do you coach people one to one?
4: I do. I um, recently qualified, so I qualified in March after a six-month intensive coaching course um, with Andy Ramage, who's very big in the sober world. And yeah, I I, I qualified in March. So I've been doing it for six months and um, had some really, really successful results. So yes, I do. So if anybody is interested, they can reach out and we can have a chat and see whether we're compatible.
1: Brilliant. That's great. And they can reach you out on on your Instagram account, which, as I say, is Sober Fishy. Isn't that right? S-O-B-E-R-F-I-S-H-I-E. There was one more question um, that I want to ask you, because again, I'm getting flashbacks now as I'm talking to you as to how... Because I didn't cope well with, with trying to give up alcohol at all. Now, I still can't drink anymore. I can, I can basically... And as you say, things have changed. I drink quite a lot of, not, of um, alcohol-free gin. Um, but the other thing which I found when I gave up alcohol was I ran out of energy <laughs> way quicker uh, than I did. So if you're out in company and everybody's drinking and you're on your fizzy water, I used to find that by about 11 or half 11, I'm thinking, I want to go home to bed now. I've had enough.
4: I haven't seen 11 o'clock for a very long time. Oh, really? Oh, God. <laughs> I obviously did it all
1: wrong. <laughs> no, there's,
4: there's no wrong way. But I think what happens is is you start to live life in a different way. So I think we touched on this earlier. Yeah. I think when you first give up, you try and live your normal life uh, your old life in your new shoes. And it's really hard, like you say, because if you haven't got alcohol running through your system, you naturally get tired. Yes. So your natural your natural body gets tired when it gets dark. And so if you're out at half 11, you're going to be tired. So I, I tend to do most of my socialising. I'll go out for a nice lunch, brunch, early dinner. But I'm I'm home. I don't stay up very late, but I tend to wake up quite early Mm. and this is the other thing about sobriety is it's not just about changing the contents of your glass it's about it's a lifestyle change and that's why you have to be really ready because it's 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 a tough journey it's not easy and that's what I do is support people through that journey to get them out the other side and live their best life
1: Right. And so then I, you know, yeah, I mean, when you say that it's it's not easy, I'm glad you said that because it's not easy, but it does, do you think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, it <laughs> does have to be all or nothing. I mean, you can't say I'm going to Absolutely. not drink alcohol right. this week, but then next week I have, I have a party on, so I might drink alcohol next Thursday or, um, but then I won't drink alcohol again for another week. That, that's not going to do it. Sure, it's not.
4: Well, unfortunately for most people, I'm an all or nothing person. And That's what I believe. But there are obviously people who think that you can drink in moderation and that you can pick and choose. But my community is about giving up alcohol for life. I believe that it an all or nothing, because every time you drink alcohol, you take yourself back to the start again. Mm. And, um, you know, by taking alcohol off of I I say you take alcohol off the menu. Yeah, it's not on your menu in the same way that if you were a vegetarian, you wouldn't ask for a menu with meat on it. Yeah. So yeah. I just say, take it off the table and give yourself a set period of time like I did, you know, two months, three months. Yeah. Just say, and I'll see what happens after that. And if your life hasn't massively improved, you know, it will improve. It won't be, I think the other problem is, is that the media can sometimes make out that do dry January and your life is going to change beyond measure. Yeah. It's not long enough. Yeah. It needs to be three to six months to give it a really good go. And so if you can just get through that, you will then see that there is a lot there's a lot more to life once you give it a chance. But a month in my opinion, whilst great, I it's would not never do it. encourage it. It's not long enough to see the benefits that you then become very protective over. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think you're great, and I do think that the point you made early on about as we get older, our body doesn't handle alcohol as well. You know, you get away with lots of stuff when you're younger and your body can handle it, but as you get older, it does become more difficult. So I'm sure there's plenty women in particular, I think, who may who who Mm. might I'm sure will be inspired by hearing your story. Um, Don, it was it was really nice to talk to you. Um, And as I said I've learned a lot. Thank you. (laughs) So thanks a million (laughs) for much. thanks for the taking our call. We'll take a break. And you're welcome back and it's Barbara Scully here with you on Late Lunch. Now, I'm very much looking forward to talking to my next guest because she's made me think about something that as a parent I think I should have been thinking about long before now. Have you ever heard of the term childism? Like a lot of the other isms it is a discrimination um, and this time against our children because they are children. Sarah Ockwell smith is a parenting expert and she's written 14 parenting books but her new book is called Because I Said So and it explores this topic not only and how it relates to families and parents, but also in the wider societal context. Sarah, thank you very much for taking our call and congratulations on the book. Oh,
5: thank you so much for chatting with me.
1: Listen, I, this, I, I just found this uh, subject absolutely fascinating. But can you start by just explaining a little better maybe than I did? Uh, what is childism?
5: Um, I think you did a pretty good job. Did I? <laughs> so I think a lot of a lot of people listening would have heard of ageism. Yeah. And when we talk about ageism in society, we think about the elderly and how we discriminate against them. Mm. But actually, ageism should apply to all ages. So it, it's talking about discrimination based on age. So mm. we should be talking about the way society discriminates against children. But we don't. Ageism is solely used for the elderly. So it's really thinking about the often really little ways that children are discriminated against that we we don't think about you know it's just that's the way we've always done things that's the way we'll always do things everything from like you said how we would discipline in the home to how schools treat children how you know i was talking to somebody the other day about if you go just out into any high street or shopping center if you visit say the public toilets, they're all set up for adults So the sinks are too high, the toilets are too high. Our world is entirely set up for adults. We don't treat children very well. Governments don't fund children very well. And when we were children, we we were all treated pretty poorly as well. So we kind of continue the cycle without realising.
1: One of the examples which actually made my blood run cold that you give is you talk about we've absolutely been conditioned to think it's okay to laugh at a toddler who's distressed. Take a photo, share it on social media so that other people can see them. But we would never do this if it was an elderly person. And I only haven't done that because social media wasn't around when my kids were small. But it really made me think. Um, And the other thing that you say, which I thought was really interesting, is that somewhere deep inside us, instinctively, we know that this is wrong. Yes. But it's just we've been conditioned to accept it as being normal.
5: So my, I wrote my story in the book and by no means you know I actually really dislike the term parenting expert um, but that's sort of what society has called me but when I had my first child 21 years ago I was told to sleep train him I was told never cuddle him to sleep or you'll spoil him and then when he became a toddler I was told I had to be firm I had to put him on the naughty or the bold step I had to had to teach him right from wrong and I felt all the time, like I was a failure. I kept thinking, I'm not strong enough for this. I just want to cuddle him. Yeah. I don't want to be mean to him. I don't want to force him to cry himself to sleep in his cot or his crib. Um, it, it took me a long time to realize my instincts weren't wrong. You know, we have these instincts for a reason. It's just I was being bombarded with messages from society that I talk about in the book, actually, it, it ranges back 100 and 150 years ago. To traditional male childcare experts who Mm. had a real issue with maternal instincts and Mm. nurturance and they would tell us to not not spoil our children with love and we've just perpetuated their advice for 150 years without actually saying is this really the right thing to do maybe it feels wrong because it is wrong
1: yeah that's what i thought was so when i read it I just it all it all made so much sense and I, I kind of thought, why is... I'm just amazed that nobody has actually kind of really said this so directly as you have done. Now, you also talk about, I mean, you know, I don't I, I, as you mentioned there a moment ago that women and mothers in particular have, the patriarchy has made us not trust our instincts and go by these yeah. rules and regulations which don't feel uh, right at all. But then when you take it out into the wider context and, and obviously you're in the UK and you mentioned the UK educational system, which is also yeah, ch- another example of childism because it is so focused on measurable results and i mean it is it, it, ireland is exactly the same so talk to me a little bit about how our education systems don't meet our children's needs or aren't the best thing for our children
5: well, certainly in the uk now we're very much focused on constantly testing it's like metrics data and we stop seeing the children as individuals And what's happened, you know, we have, our education system is in a mess in the UK. Mm. We have, it's chronically underfunded. We've got lots of stressed teachers who are being overworked and underpaid. Our buildings are literally crumbling. We have this concrete crisis because we've not been invested in. And at the centre of all of it are children who are in classrooms with too many children being, you know, they're almost like exam factories. We don't consider their holistic needs, it's just, How do we turn them through this on this conveyor belt to give them the qualifications they need to go to the next stage? And I I speak with so many teachers who say, but I can't control the behavior so difficult. What can I do to control that? And what we need to do is take a step back and say, who is this system really designed for? Is it really meeting the needs of children? Perhaps teachers are struggling so much with behavior because everything in the school is not meeting the children's needs and it's there are no magic behavior control techniques that they're going to fix that in the classroom it's a much deeper societal systemic issue that we need to take a step back from it all and just think is this really what's best for children and I, I just we don't do that we keep plowing on with sticking classes of trying to fix things which are ever more childish without us realizing because we ourselves went through this sort of a system and we're, we're all a little bit damaged without realising. And it's, it's really heartbreaking. But I think also at the same time, it's time for a bit of a sort of a social revolution to say, OK, I see this. Once you see childism, you can't unsee it. It's
1: everywhere. It's like feminism, think, isn't it? My life was great was until I became a feminist and now I, there's songs <laughs> I can't listen to and there's all kinds of things that give me a headache, that used to give me a headache it, it, at all.
5: But the more we talk about it and the more people see it, the more we can come together and say, it's time now that we talk about doing things differently. We can't just keep doing things the way we've always done them, because that's the way we've always done them. It's time to say, maybe actually we don't treat children very well. Where I am in England, it's still legal to hit children as a form of discipline. I can't hit anybody else legally, but I'm allowed to hit a three-year-old because have been naughty. Yeah, that's, you know, what that's, sort of a message is that
1: giving children? Yeah, that's shocking. I mean, it is shocking. I know it's been illegal here since uh, 2015. The other thing what? which I thought was really interesting that you say, and this is taking this point further on, is that you talk about childcare and you state mm-hmm. that the neoliberalist agenda is how do we get more people out to work and get more kids into childcare as cheaply as possible? And you believe that the change in how we treat our children really has to start with childcare. What changes... Do we need, I mean, I think this is a very brave thing for you to say, <laughs> um, but I, I actually, again, it's one of these things, and I say this as somebody whose children were in childcare, that chimed with me, what do we need to change about childcare?
5: Yeah, so my, my issue is not that we send children to childcare and that we go to work. My issue is that our government only seem to value parents if they are economically active. Yeah. So we don't value the nurturance of a parent who decides to stay at home and raise their child. But similarly, I don't think we support working parents enough. The people who work in childcare are absolute heroes. They're underpaid heroes. The the nurturance they deliver is amazing. My issue is it's completely underfunded by our government. And we are creating, again, it's much like schools. It's like these big places or factories where we can store our children when we go to work. Mm. um which is insane because that's they are the future you know what could be more important than investing in them and caring for them but I think when whatever you do as a parent whether you work whether you stay at home you can't win yeah you know, there's, there's a quote I use in the book that if you do go to work you're expected to work like you don't have children but then you're also expected to be a parent like, like you don't, you don't have work a job. yeah exactly so we are you know parents are stuck in the middle and it's It's really important that people understand that I'm not blaming or shaming parents. No. I think we are being utterly failed by the systems that somehow we've helped to create.
1: And isn't... Um, Sorry to interrupt you there, but isn't this uh, this this is absolutely why we need more women, critical masses of women in politics and in the places where yeah. decisions are made, because that at the moment, feminism is operating in a world that was designed by men for men who had wives at home doing all the rest of it. And in uh, in yeah, our in our, our cool. rush to equality, which is great and I'm all for it. But we've actually created we've actually reinforced a lot of this stuff that really should have been taken apart.
5: As women today, as mothers today, I think ultimately feminism has made things a little bit harder for us because yes. we, de- we now we can go to work and we can earn a living and we can have a career, but we are still holding the bulk of the parental mental load. We're still doing basically as much as we used to do when we used to stay at home and our husbands went out to work. Yeah. But we're now also trying to balance the career with it. And then you know one of the things I talk about in the book is that parents are really exhausted. We've got cost of living crisis. So we've got more children than ever living in poverty. And we are shattered. And when we are struggling to make ends meet, when we are struggling emotionally, we um, lose our temper more and we shout at our children more. And there's research showing that when we're stressed or when we're in poverty, our children are on the receiving end of more harsh punishments and discipline. So everything we can talk about, it comes down to who suffers the most it's always the, the children.
1: children. Sarah, I could always. talk to you for the rest of the afternoon, never mind even just the rest of the show because I just find this fascinating and I just want to congratulate you on raising these topics. They're not easy things to, to raise. Your book is called Because I Said So. It's published by Hachette in the UK. should be available here in Ireland in local bookshops very soon. Uh, but Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really enjoyed that. Thank you and the best of luck. And you're welcome back. Now our last guest today, last but by no means least, is Des Grant who is doing a a history walk this Thursday at 7.30pm exploring the long history of clock and watchmaking in Drogheda and he's on the line now to tell us a little bit more. How are you doing Des?
2: Hello, Barbara, and thank you very much for having me on your show.
1: Not at all. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, listen, apparently, because I was learning from from the notes that I, I got from this, Drogheda has a long history of clockmaking. How far back does it go?
2: Well, uh, uh history in, in terms of clockmaking, or to put it more, uh, in terms of timepieces, if we're at the measurement of horology, it goes back to Newgrange, oh. uh, which is 5,000 years. So... Um, yeah, I was quite surprised myself, but if if you speak to horologists throughout the world, and particularly in Switzerland, which is the home of clockmaking and watchmaking, uh, all the experts there are in agreement that Newgrange was the first timepiece in the world. So it's a beautiful claim to fame for Ireland I never the I never heard
1: I never heard that before I always thought and I'd say most people thought that Newgrange was it was some kind of burial-y thing or something like that
2: Well it may very well have had multiple uses right. and I su- su- suspect that it did but uh, it was created for monitoring the the, the movement of the sun, sun in the sky or the apparent movement of the sun in the sky and uh, uh, where the sunlight comes in uh, and the 21st of December every year. Solstice. Um, but do you know during Covid we discovered that it actually comes in 16 days before the 21st and 16 days after it and that underlined and enforced the whole theory that it was actually built as a uh, an instrument of time measurement. And
1: the first one in the world, that's incredible.
2: Yeah, it is the the first in the world. If you, The Museum of Horology in Switzerland, its curator there is a, a, a Gregory Gardnetti, and he is the foremost authority on watches and clocks in the entire world. He speaks for the Swiss right. watch industry. And when he does lectures, he puts up slides of Newgrange, and he describes it as the first timepiece in the world. Interesting. you know. And do you yeah. think it's
1: that old link that, in some way, then led to the fact that that Drogheda does have a long kind of tradition of shops of of clock making and watchmaking shops in the town?
2: No, I think I, I don't. I don't think there's a direct link between Newgrange and our. Uh, the clock making really began, as in the 1760s in in Drogheda, and but took off in in a big way in the eighteen hundreds. And do you have and, any particular
1: uh, favourite kind of from that era, favorite family or or, or clockmaker, yeah. watchmaker?
2: Well you see in Droda we had the the, the, the Duffner family who who were who came from Germany. There was about five families came from Germany and including the Albert family and they Alberts were the greatest clockmakers of that generation and the Droda Corporation clock in the uh, their council meeting chamber, uh, that comes from Alberts.
3: Wow! And
2: so I like their one very much. Yeah. And uh, the, the uh, and the Duffner pocket watches, and it was very interesting. Duffner pocket watches were used by the British military in World War One, and yet the Duffners were a German family living in Drauda. So mm. it was quite remarkable, and um, that the the British were actually we- purchasing. German watches. watches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my my so,
1: producer here, Louise, who is the oracle and uh, font of all knowledge really for this show, she has just told me before before I got talking to you that her grandfather, who was a, I presume, a clockmaker or watchmaker, he used to um, go and collect, go to the train station every week to collect the time, the correct time that came down from Dublin. Yeah, that's... That, uh,
2: is yeah, she making uh, that up
1: now, or is that true?
2: No, I'd say, I'd say that's true. But uh, Irish time was uh, was twenty minutes different to UK time. Uh, uh, I think we were twenty minutes behind them, and uh, that was changed uh, roughly around our War of Independence. So, wow. um Yeah, yeah. So we were always uh, Ireland had its own time zone. Oh! Um, so uh, I kind of like and we that. Still, Yeah, we still are on the 12-hour clock. Uh, Ireland is the only country in Europe that is on the 12-hour clock. Uh, And and there's only one country left in Africa using the 12-hour clock. How do you mean now? Well... You've heard the expression uh, 6am and 6pm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't have that in any other country in Europe. Everywhere else, they use the 24-hour clock. Oh, the
1: 24-hour clock, clock. right, I hear you. Yeah,
2: so if you ask an Italian to call to your door at 7 o'clock, meaning 7 in the evening, you you know, they'll actually arrive at 7 in the morning. So, Ireland is the only place that uses the 12-hour clock um, currently in Europe, where the last... We're holding out to our old, quaint traditions.
1: Can't, yeah, so. I kind of like that. Well, talking of old, quaint traditions, then mm. the other thing that I mean, I am a fan of a proper watch. I consider a watch to be a piece of jewellery and I like a watch that has a face and it and hands that move and numbers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but is it a dying thing, that, you know, because nowadays most of the people I know have, you know, smart watches or at least a digital watch rather than a kind of a piece of jewellery watch.
2: No, because I'll tell you what happened. It, uh, the two countries in the world are that really dominate watchmaking at the moment are uh, Switzerland, Ireland, and also, I, I add in a third, the Japanese. The greatest watchmaker in the world at the moment is a man called Stephen McDonald. He's the Pele uh, of, of soccer, uh, the equivalent in watchmaking. No. and. Uh, he he's considered by absolutely everyone to be the, the greatest watchmaker of his generation, bar none. So and now he's would, a Belfast
1: man. And would he then yeah. work for some of these? Because again, I know you know that there are these um, yeah. th- the watches that are the very expensive brands, which I'm not going to mention. But you know the ones that are yeah. the, you'd, you'd be wearing a good few thousand on your wrist. Is that the kind well, of people he works for? Or is he a-
2: his watches would be into the hundreds of thousands. And yes, he does work for some of the big Swiss watchmaking firms, and the watches would be done in collaboration. Right. And uh, and then there's a there's the, the fantastic watch. See, there was, there was a Swiss Institute of Horology in Ireland for since 1965, and it closed in 2004. And basically, that was a watchmaking school, and the Swiss set it up here to train Irish people into the art of watchmaking. And it was the only school in the world outside of Switzerland. So 600 graduates, which is 15 a year, came out of that school. And because of that, that's what sparked the Celtic revival of Irish watchmaking. And would you believe it? We now have 11 watchmaking firms in Ireland, manufacturing in Ireland, from the bottom of the market to the top of the market. So we're... The very top of the market to anything from... Fifty euro watches, up to fifty thousand euro watches, or even in the in the McDonald case, several hundred thousands.
1: Imagine wearing fifty thousand euros worth of a watch on your wrist.
2: Well, um, holy god! But they are quite yeah. Well, they are quite beautiful, and it is quite expensive. And 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 there, there is a market for all types of watches. Like there's yeah. watches made in Ireland that are one thousand euros, and I can tell you those watches anywhere else you know made in the world would probably be 2,000 you know so there's some fantastic watches being made in Ireland
1: Amazing tell me a little bit um, Des about your walk now this Thursday what is that going to involve and how can people get, get can join you
2: Okay it, we have a walking festival in Drogheda this week. Uh, it's the Boyne Valley Trails September Walking Festival. So a group of tour guides from the area and a group of historians from the area, including myself, will be doing all types of nature walks ar- ar- in the, around Drogheda and its environments and some historical walks in the town. Mine is a historical walk on the watchmakers. So what I'll do is I'll bring people through Drogheda. I'll show them where all the watchmakers uh, did their business. Uh, in Drauda by the way, uh, all the watchmakers were on the north side of the street, and that's so they could catch the sunlight ah, coming right. in from the, from the south. And if you watch the windows in the, in the draudas on the north side of Drauda, they're actually bow-shaped windows on the upper floors to, and that's catch to allow the light. More, sun, more sunlight in. So I, I show people uh, the shops where they were, and of course, the most famous one of all in the middle of West Street was where Thomas North was, and that's where the lady in 1850 brought the Tara brooch into him, and Holy she God. asked what it was, and he bought the Tara brooch, and which he took to Dublin, and it became very, very famous. Wow! And that was a few doors up from Saint Peter's Church. So Drauda has this wonderful connection uh, through, our, through our watchmakers with history. With, uh, to
1: the Tower of yeah, uh, uh, yeah and to the first clock ever listen it sounds fascinating do people have to book where do they just quickly yeah, where do it, they go book
2: they, they book online Boyne Valley Trails brilliant all the tours are there you can book online and, and, and get your tickets um, uh, and most of there my one is at 7.30 in the, in the evening. evening on Thursday. Thursday and there's a Jemison Whiskey Tour as well I forgot to mention that that's there's a Jemison Whiskey Tour on tonight and tomorrow night. And that's Brilliant. where I take on the persona of John Jemison, the founder of Jemison Whiskey. With distillery in the town.
1: There you go. Listen, it sounds fantastic, Des. Thanks very much for telling us all about that and the best of luck with your event on Thursday. And that's it for today. I'll be here again tomorrow to do it all again. I want to thank my producer, Louise, who keeps me on track. Don't go away. Eddie is next with the drive. Uh, but that's it for today. Thanks very much for listening.
0: That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. Bluenile.com code LISTEN.
5: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip?